Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. I wish Joy Reid would invite me on her show. I'm, let's see if she's woman enough to do that. I'd go in a heartbeat and we have a real discussion without Joy speaking about me behind my back, if you will. She talks about white supremacy. Does she know that I ran against a white supremacist? I mean, Joy, come on, get your facts straight and then come talk to me. That's Winsome Sears, the new lieutenant governor of Virginia. Taking Joy Reid to task. Oh, you voted for her, but it's white supremacy that put a black woman in the lieutenant governor's office, meaning the first time a black woman has won statewide office in Virginia. The bigotry on display, absolutely, positively incredible, off the charts, bigotry. After this election, no one's going the other way. No one's trying to tone it down. They are bringing it back up. They're proud of it. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today, good to be with you. This is more of the lieutenant governor-elect, this time on the Sean Hannity program. Well, I I tell you, the first person who ever really talked about black business equals black power was Richard Nixon. Black business equals black power. Imagine that. All this time it appears that Nixon was a homeboy. What we're going to do is we can need we, can we, someone can we, can we who stop? has. Nixon was a homeboy? Uh, that's, she wins. She wins. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Did I say hello? I forgot. That just threw me for a loop. She seems like a true fighter. But listen to the kind of stuff she's fighting. This from Tiffany Cross filling in for the bigot Joy Reid on MSNBC. Failure to deliver their agenda. A rebuke on everything from critical race theory to the Democrats' election strategy. But let's be honest, here's the thing. All those takes are like searching the edges while refusing to see what's staring right back at you. And I can assure you, black voters in Virginia are not shocked by the so-called Yunkin shocker. This isn't about enthusiasm. This isn't about Democrats not doing enough to exercise their base. And this definitely is not about messaging or even about beloved. This is about the fact that a good chunk of voters out there are okay with white supremacy. Let's call it a- Just deciding that all black voters think one way and all white voters think another, and that's all it is. No question about whether or not it, it has to do with parents wanting to ensure their kids get an education, not an indoctrination. Remember, they are most upset that you think you have a say in your kid's education. They're disgusted by this. This is why you need to double down and triple down. Because look what they're doing. Look how they're ratcheting it up. You didn't vote for Terry McAuliffe. You didn't vote for that white guy. You voted for another white guy. Therefore, you're a white supremacist. That is a pretty hot take. A pretty hot take indeed. Then uh, you have this, this spectacular tweet, white women vote to protect their white sons. That's it. That's, that, that's, that's the tweet. 
Oh, she did follow it up with, if you're mad about this, I'm talking to you. Stay mad. So clearly that wasn't it. White women vote to protect their white sons. And black women vote to protect their black sons. And Jewish women vote to protect their Jewish sons. And so on and so on and so on. Of course you do. But never mind the ignorance. It was just a good level of attack. Mehdi Hassan going down the racial road. Him from MSNBC. You've got, uh, as we know, Van Jones referring to the uh, the uh, to to the candidate Glenn Youngkin, the governor candidate, as a disease. This goes on and on. And if you think that I don't have it down to a science, well, I did get a little bit of help in order to explain it to you. And this is just all, everything that took place just in the, really the last couple of days as people are like, wait a second, Democrats didn't win an election? Pull out the race machine. Glenn Youngkin played the race card for a reason because he knows it works on certain white voters. He did stoke white grievance politics to mobilize the Republican base. He's laundered Trump's really sort of disgusting, flagrant out-racism. He's wrapped it in education. Education, which is code for white parents don't like the idea of teaching about race. That's the fundamental problem for these parents and this anti-CRT movement. They don't like the way whiteness is being portrayed in these new, more inclusive lessons. This wasn't about those pocketbook issues. This was about how white kids feel talking about what black kids go through. The subtext of all this was we can't let these black and brown people run the country. They elected a black woman to help run Virginia, and there was no black person on the ticket for governor, at least Republican or Democrat. So what are they talking about? And by the way, I should be clear about something. Uh, watch me push back on the concept of whiteness. You, that, that is so despicable and disgusting. I was born this way, and I am not apologizing to a damn person. You want to put me in a category and label me without knowing me, which part of go to hell should we discuss? Because that's obscene. You're, never mind just me. You shouldn't do that to anybody. But it happens time and again. And standing up to it is important because they are clearly tripling down on it. So what's it like? You're black and you're a Republican. You're running for office. What's it like for you? And then, is it really any different than anybody else? Quincy McKnight will be joining us, a candidate for Congress in the 5th District of Tennessee. We met while doing a a Newsmax hit together, and I owe the man an apology, and I figure I'll do it on the air. I'll tell you why. Coming up, keep it right here. I'm Tony Katz. So the other day I was on Newsmax. Tony Katz, 
Tony Katz today. Always great to be with you. Facebook, Tony Katz Radio. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. And sometimes I'm paired with somebody. I don't always know who they are. And I'm paired with Quincy McKnight. I'm like, okay. I'll do a quick search of Quincy McKnight. I saw that Quincy McKnight is running for for, for Congress in Tennessee. Okay. Uh, small business owner. Uh, world of uh, merchant services. My family's in the merchant services business. That's great. Well, look at that. Quincy McKnight actually played basketball in Indiana uh, for the Fort Wayne Mad Ants, which is an NBA G League team that leads itself up to the Indiana Pacers right around the corner from me. That's amazing. What I didn't realize is that I was looking at two different people. And there we are on Newsmax and had a great conversation. And I make reference to the fact to the host, Bob Sellers, that, you know, you got two Hoosiers, two Indiana guys on here. It's a lot of common sense. But Quincy McKnight running for Congress is in the 5th District of Tennessee is not the Quincy McKnight who plays for the for the Mad Ants in Fort Wayne. I said, oh, you got to come on the show and let me apologize like a human being. My goodness gracious. And then let's hear your story. Quincy McKnight uh, joins us uh, right now. You can find uh, his site at QuincyForCongress.com. Uh, I always owe up. I, te- I reached out on Twitter immediately to be like, dude, I owe you an apology because I just realized the mistake <laughs> that I made uh, right there. And I'm the first guy to make that mistake, right? <laughs> was I? Was I the first? Uh, yes, I've never had that done before in my life. All right. Well, well, I only hope somebody else does it, so I'm not uh, the the only one. Uh, but but you you bring about it in, in an in, an interesting story as, as a guy running for Congress there in in the fifth district. That's the the Nashville area, and something you said on air, uh, which I think it seems to be something that's that's moving this run for yours. You mentioned that the zip code that you live in or that you're around, you're going to represent, is the most incarcerated zip code in America, and that blew my mind. Tell me that story and how you get into this race. Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, thank you for having me on the show, number one. Uh, and saying you're sorry, too. That means a lot. Uh, you know, because there's only one Quincy McKnight, the real one, that's me. So, Nashville, <laughs> Tennessee. <laughs> so, yeah. So, 37208, uh, it is one of the most, it, it is the most incarcerated zip code uh, in the country, um, especially within the Nashville marketplace. And a lot of people that's from Nashville, they didn't even know it, but they know it's just a high crime district. Um, so that really, once I learned these stats, Tony, what that did for me, it really sparked a, a, a huge change of thought pattern processes because immediately I got to thinking, this is not a Republican thing. This is not a democratic thing. This is a community thing. This is a city issue. This is a state issue. Uh, this is a national issue because Nashville is not the only one dealing with crime. Of course, we've got Chicago and everywhere else in the world that's shooting up and killing everybody everywhere. So, um, but this really, you know, it really sparked a huge interest in me, uh, and, and, and trying, trying to truly make a difference and be a face of change and a voice of change in Nashville. When we look at these things politically, Quincy, we hear from the political left that the answer here is that we have to get rid of cash bail. We have to change what policing is. When we hear it from uh, the political right, we hear about how we need to be strong, uh, uh, on crime. You're running as a Republican. Uh, in oh, in yeah. in this district, you certainly believe in strong on crime, but give me an idea of where your platform is on how to handle these things, because you are very much about the idea of of what you refer to as generation or generational healing, along with anti-corruption. 
Yeah, well, I, I've I've said this for you know quite a while since I've been running and campaigning that each generation has seen different hurtful circumstances. Um, all the way from you know three generations back from me, they saw the things that happened from Emmett Till graduating all the way to you know your your um, your guy in California. Um, I cannot think of his name. I'm a, having a senior moment here. Um, you talking Rodney about Larry King. Elder, the radio host? No, no Rodney King. Rodney oh, Rodney King. King. From, okay. From yeah, from from that, you know, national embarrassment to now. You saw last year of George Floyd. Generational healings are not are not occurring within each generation, uh, especially within the African American communities. And and so until these things are dealt with, until these things are talked about and and, and dealt with on a public platform. Um, we're going to continue to stay where we are. Um, and the quicker most conservatives want to talk about this and make it a, an actual issue because that's what's holding people back, um, it's gonna, they, things will still stay the way they are. First, I, I got to say, I thought you were talking about radio hosts, and Larry is in the news, and I'll get to that story in a little bit, talking to <laughs> Quincy McKnight, running for Congress in the Tennessee 5th District, QuincyForCongress.com. Uh, give me a little bit of it. What do you think the conversation is that people on the political right are not having and should? Sure. Well, I mean, talking about the true law enforcement and and how police get limited you know, by corrupt judiciary and bureaucrats, um, all the way to have to have them having the actual respect from the communities and the leaders um, that need to be representing the people. Um, that is where the issues are, uh, because we've got the right now, we've got the wrong people in these places, in these cities across America. It's not just a national issue. It's a this has been a generational thing. And we are we're continuing to elect the wrong people. That's just what I believe. Um um, especially dealing with crime and dealing with these things. I mean, look at Lori Lightfoot. I mean, unfortunately, she does not know how to handle Chicago. You know, and that's your neighboring city. Um, I mean, you got all these types of prime examples out here that we can have all these different community programs out here, but until we deal with the realities of the hurt and the shame and the pain that these families have had to go through, um, we're never going to, we're, we're not going to continue to move forward. And, and until and me as running as an African-American conservative, and I've been a conservative my whole life, um, I, my values and how I view things, it's, it's, it's very straightforward. There's no gray area in how I look at things. Right is right and wrong is wrong. Um, well, I, and I think you'll find a lot of people who, who connect with you there. But it's, it's, it's interesting to talk to you now, especially post the election in, in Virginia and Winsome Sears being elected uh, as, as lieutenant governor there. And you're seeing the absolute derision she's getting from those uh, in the media. Uh, uh, it, it's just a, a gift of white supremacy. She's just a token. Uh, of course, Winsome Sears uh, from Jamaica, black woman, first uh, st- uh, as they like to keep Telling us, first a black woman elected to statewide office, except those who usually cheer those things are very silent uh, about Winsome Sears. You take a look at that race, and do you find yourself in any level of identification with that is how the press treats you, or what she's, how she has responded, and how you see yourself like that, or is you, you already know you were like that, and you've dealt with those kinds of things? Does it become more frustrating, or does it become more impactful? 
Well, I'll say this. I'll say this, Tony, regarding Miss Sears. Um, I, I had the opportunity to meet her earlier in the spring, and I think she's a wonderful American. She served our country well, and any American, any person that will disrespect her, especially from our American journalism people, any person that will disrespect her, I have, I don't have much respect for um, because she's done nothing but raise her. She's a mother that's raised her children. She served our country. She's now serving as a lieutenant governor of Virginia's uh, first black female person. I mean, listen, I don't have time to deal with the shenanigans of what these people out here want to name call and journalists because who has time for that stuff? We've got way too many more issues to deal with than name calling. I mean, because have I dealt with the names being called to me? I, I, no, they, no one's ever called me any uncle Tom's or anything like that to my face. And they better not because they don't have, I, cause I live on facts and just like Miss Sears, she operates on facts. I mean, so, we can, you know, there's no point. It, I, I don't understand. Cause he, and here's the thing it's it's really the white left liberals that I feel that are causing all the this, this rhetoric out here. Black people are not sitting around. I don't get any messages from blacks, you know, not even on my social media platforms. They don't call me anything outside of my name. If they have issues, they bring it up to me or they'll send me a private message. But it's the white liberals that will blatantly, publicly put information out there that says, oh, he's just another sellout. He's, I mean, what do you know about being a sellout? Tell me a day that you were black, because I don't know when. You'll never be black. So, I, well, I, I was waiting for you to finish. I was going to give you all, all, all the platform uh, while I still got a, a minute. <laughs> I know you're a Second Amendment guy, and I and and I know uh, it got talked about by some of your staff where I was coordinating this. Uh, very much a pro a pro life uh, a guy, and people can find out more uh, about you at uh, Quincy uh, for Congress. Uh, dot com. That's the website uh, to go to. Uh, again, I made the mistake. I owe up to the mistake because that's <laughs> what you do, Quincy. Uh, look, a, a pleasure to talk to you, and 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 we should do this again from time to time. Just kind of get the pulse. You're running against a guy who's been in the seat for 32 years, uh, Representative Cooper. The next time we have you on, I want to get into that conversation. But people want to find out more. Quincy McKnight for Congress. Quincy. Q-U-I-N-C-Y, QuincyForCongress.com. Man, an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tony. I appreciate your time. Absolutely. We're going to do it. We're going to do it again. We're going to do it again. Supreme Court hearing about Second Amendment cases. And they've got questions about why New York is stopping people from being able to uh, get a firearm. Then there's the story of Ed Durr. And how he literally changed the political landscape for $153. This is Tony Katz Today. So the Supreme Court taking a look at some pretty nonsense gun laws in New York and not liking what they're seeing. And it seems quite likely that the people who have spurred on the fight against 
may issue versus shall issue laws. The idea of you don't get to carry a firearm unless you prove to us why and just wanting one isn't enough. Well, that cost a state senator their seat in New Jersey. We will get to that. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It is so good to be with you. What's going on with SCOTUS and what does this mean for the future of the Second Amendment? Cam Edwards joins us right now. He is the editor over at BearingArms.com, B-E-A-R-I-N-G, BearingArms.com. And Cam, uh, even the Washington Post uh, putting out there, it looks like SCOTUS is going to strike down New York carry laws. Talk to me about this case, what the justices are saying, and what comes next. Yeah, you're right. That does seem to be the conventional wisdom that yesterday was a good day for the uh, Second Amendment at the Supreme Court, uh, and it's going to be with you. So this is a case dealing with the May issue carry laws in the state of New York. Uh, Unlike the vast majority of states where if you apply for a concealed carry permit, you pass a background check, you've completed your training, you get a license. In New York, it's a little more complicated than that. Um, First of all, you have to do things like submit character references to show that you're, you know, of good, moral, upstanding character. Uh, And even if you do all of that, a judge or a county sheriff can look at your application and say, why do you need to carry a gun? And if you say, well, I live in a bad neighborhood or, you know, uh, it's my right, um, that's not good enough. And you can be denied, uh, which is exactly what happened to the two named plaintiffs in this case. Uh, So they decided they weren't going to take this. They, They felt like, you know, their rights are being denied if the average citizen in New York can't bear arms then how on earth can you say that the Second Amendment is being respected? So they sued, uh, and the uh, case has now made its way to the Supreme Court. Obviously, the state of New York says, uh, no, we're, we're, we're abiding by people's Second Amendment rights because we allow people to get what's called restricted licenses that allow them to uh, you know, carry a gun when they're hunting or when they're in the woods or when they're camping. Uh, Supreme Court uh, Justice John Roberts asked yesterday, okay, well, how many people get mugged in the forest? Right? I mean, if the purpose of the Second Amendment is for self-defense. Did he really? You only let people... Yeah, he did. He said, well, how many people get mugged in a forest? Because, you know, the purpose of the Second Amendment is self-defense. So if you're telling people that they're going to only carry where crimes are really, really rare, how on earth are you satisfying their right? Um, And I think that's the the, the trouble for New York and these other May-issue states out there is really at the end of the day, there's no way to get around the fact that they are infringing on the right to bear arms by denying the average citizen their ability to carry a gun in self-defense. So now the Supreme Court looks at this. Mm-hmm. And says, clearly, this is New York limiting people's rights. So if they go about making a decision in this case, is this about overturning the New York law? Or is is this about th- then New York goes back and decides how they're going to create a shall-issue state and drag that on for a couple of years? Or does it make it automatic? Boom, bop, bip, you can get a license to carry a firearm in New York. Well, I think that's the uh, million-dollar question. Um, And I I would be shocked if New York uh, simply accepted whatever the Supreme Court's decision ultimately is. I think they probably will try to drag their feet on this. But, you know, I'm also cautiously optimistic. I mean, there are a couple of other states. So uh, Illinois was the last state in the union to to ban all carrying of firearms. And they were sued. They lost to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. And the gun control lobby prevailed on the state. Uh, don't don't take this to the Supreme Court because we're really afraid of what they might say. So just take the loss, set up a shall issue concealed carry law. And that's what the state of Illinois has done. Uh, there are now more than 30,000 concealed carry holders in the city of Chicago. Washington, D.C., after the Heller decision struck down its ban on guns in the home, uh, they adopted a May issue carry regime. They were sued. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals said, nope, that's you can't do that. 
Uh, and rather than appeal that case to the Supreme Court, D.C. acquiesced and they became a shall issue jurisdiction. So, you know, I, I think it's entirely possible that the Supreme Court writes this decision in such a way that it really precludes New York from playing a lot of games. Um, but, you know, if look, if they leave open the possibility for New York to say, sure, we're shall issue. If you, you know, go through all the training, you pass a background check, you can get a license. But we require 120 hours of training and it's five hundred dollars to apply for that license. Like that's not going to fly. Right. Because so, that, wouldn't that be playing into the idea of poll tax? Exactly. Yes. Because now you're trying to price people out of a right. So, I mean, New York could go that route, uh, which would lead to another lawsuit and would lead to another smackdown. Um, I, I certainly don't think that states like New York or California or Massachusetts or New Jersey are going to make it easy for people to exercise their right to bear arms. But I, I believe that uh, after the Supreme Court decision comes down next year, they're going to find it very difficult to maintain. In fact, I think they're going to find it impossible to maintain these May issue uh, regimes. I think they are going to be forced to adopt a shall issue system. Talking to Cam Edwards over at BearingArms.com, B-E-A-R-I-N-G, BearingArms.com. And as you write about, this may not be the 6-3 decision, conservative versus the liberal justices. Uh, You've got Elena Kagan, who I think threw some unnecessary shade the other day regarding the Texas abortion law. I thought it was very, very uh, beneath her because while I disagree with her, Politically, I think she has been this rather unique justice who has actually done some adjudicating as opposed mm-hmm. to a Sonia Sotomayor who only, as I see it, does voting with the leftist argument. Uh, and you're making the case here that Kagan could be someone who looks at this and says, yeah, you, you can't simply limit people. And she could be somebody who votes for the overturning of this New York law. I, I think so, although I, I, I think we might see, you know, I, I think this might be one of those messy decisions where you get, like, a majority opinion, then you get, like, four or five dissents, you get people who are, like, you know, concurring in part and dissenting in part. I, I have a feeling that a lot of these justices are going to want to add their two cents uh, to what the court overall has to say. But the reason why I bring up Kagan is because, you know, people forget she was not on the bench when the Heller decision was decided, striking down D.C.'s handgun ban. She was not of the court when they struck down Chicago's gun ban in McDonald versus Chicago. So she has not actually ruled on a Second Amendment case as a justice. Um, the late Antonin Scalia reached out to Justice Kagan, and they would go hunting. Like, they went pheasant hunting. He took her out to Wyoming for a deer hunt. Uh, and, and so she is, I think, aware, you know, personally of firearms in a way that, that maybe some of the other members of the liberal wing of the court are not. Uh, And this came up yesterday because she said something that I thought was really telling. She said, you know, on the face of it, you'd think that Wyoming and New York should have different gun laws. But she said, we don't really treat rights that way. And I think this was a sign that she's wrestling with something here that, you know, she she recognizes Wyoming and New York are very different places. But that doesn't change people's First Amendment rights or their Fourth Amendment rights if they live in a rural area as opposed to living in midtown Manhattan. So why should it? curtail their right to keep and bear arms living in a populated area. Um, and, and so I, I think that we might actually see Kagan sign on to at least the idea that um, New York's carry laws as written are unconstitutional. I don't know if she's going to go, you know, 100 percent with a, a Justice Kavanaugh or with Justice Alito or Justice Thomas. But I, I think we may see some common ground. 
And you're also writing over there at BearingArms.com that uh, the standard gun grabbers are doing uh, their gun grabbiest uh, to uh, make a stink about this, including uh, David Hogg uh, from uh, the Parkland uh, shooting. Uh, however, he uh, has no longer a kid, now an adult, and has proven himself terrible in every sense of the word. Uh, why is he hysterical? Well, I think he is hysterical and and other gun control activists are hysterical because they know that this is really, if we get a good Supreme Court decision, I mean, it's really the death knell for their movement. You know, you go back to the 1960s, early 1970s, the gun control lobby was Handgun Control Incorporated. Their big push was to ban handguns. And that didn't really work out. Uh, So now they switched, you know, banning uh, uh, assault rifles and large capacity magazines, and they want to limit the right to carry. They've already been told by the Supreme Court, look, you can't ban handguns. I think they'll be told by the court as well, you can't ban AR-15s. If the court says you can't ban people from carrying firearms, really, what is left for the gun control lobby? And how does the gun control lobby redefine itself? Because at that point, Tony, they're explicitly an anti-civil rights movement. They exist to prevent people from exercising their civil rights. I mean, that's that's a pretty hard thing to come back from. Uh, we've actually seen uh, gun control activists like Adam Winkler, who's a UCLA law professor, argue that it's time for the gun control lobby to shift and to quit talking about banning guns, quit talking about trying to ban magazines, and said that he thinks they should focus on things like, you know, community violence intervention, uh, things like, you know, uh, violence interrupters, things like that don't involve trying to go after people's right to own a, a firearm. Uh, I think it's a smart idea. I just don't know that the gun lobby is going to do it. So I think they're in a bit of an existential crisis at the moment. If your identity is wrapped up in ending the guns, well, then you can't change that. But I always thought that the plan was, well, if we can't get the gun, we'll get the ammunition. If we can't get the ammunition, we'll get you on the list. If we can't get you on the list, then they'll find another way to play the game. I People who are ideological, in my view, they don't seem to give up. And this, uh, I'm going to take a quick pivot here, Cam, talking to Cam Edwards from BearingArms.com. Mm-hmm. You're a Virginia guy. Let me take the pivot to the election you just lived through. Glenn Yonkin, now the governor-elect. Winsome Sears, the lieutenant governor-elect. And Tiffany Cross at MSNBC, Joy Reid at MSNBC, Mehdi Hassan at MSNBC, a lot of people at MSNBC, a lot of people in the social media sphere. You voted for white supremacy in Virginia. That's all it is. That's all we've got. They aren't learning their lesson. Some people would think, you know, hey, maybe they'll slow down from this. They're doubling down. And all you did was try and prevent your kid from being taught about race because you're just a scared white person, even though Glenn Youngkin picked up Latinos at a better rate than Joe Biden. That's right. Yeah. And apparently I, you know, I I didn't want my uh, my biracial kids to to learn about segregation. Um, That's why. Wait, you have biracial children? <laughs> I do. I, uh, we can't have you on the show now. Now too. we I have know. to. We have to end the no. interview. We can't. We can't have this. Oh, no. I'm told that I'm not allowed to allow this. So <laughs> sorry for violating the uh, the one drop rule there. Uh, no, I, I. You know, this is absurd. But they are doubling down. And as a Republican, as a conservative, I say, well, keep going, please, because you know I, I really like you guys to stay asleep in the switch till after the midterms, maybe even after 2024. You know, what we saw in Virginia, I think actually we had a couple of issues. I think the critical race theory issue was big, particularly in the northern Virginia suburbs and in the Richmond suburbs. But I actually think in, in rural Virginia, it was that was not as much of an issue as the Democrats 
push for gun control going back two years. You know, when Democrats took control of the state legislature in Virginia in 2019, that saw the 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 wave of Second Amendment sanctuaries just sweep across the state of Virginia over the last uh, the, you know the, the next couple of months. And I went to a lot of these county supervisors meetings where there were thousands of folks who were standing up and demanding that their county do something to protect their right to keep and bear arms. These were folks who were angry. They were energized. They were engaged. And I think some of them have been waiting for two years to cast that vote. Uh, and we saw this in the, the rural turnout where not only did Glenn Youngkin get, you know, probably 10 percent more of the vote uh, in terms of the partisan split compared to 2017, but the turnout was so much higher in rural counties. I mean, you had counties that, you know, were at 55 percent turnout in 2017 at 70% turnout in 2021. And so not only was Youngkin getting a larger share of the vote, but he was getting more raw votes than the Republican got four years ago. And I think that, you know, you spread that out across the state of Virginia and you're looking at pretty close to Glenn Youngkin's margin of victory. The uh, the future of Virginia with having Republicans in charge of the House of Delegates, what specifically can we look to there? And then I, I guess the bigger question is, where do we think this uh, inspires or moves other states? Is is this something that's considered a one and done? Or, or is there something to learn from even those delegate races? Remember, they have a House of Delegates there, guys. They don't have a, a House of Representatives or a General Assembly in, in their General Assembly, like like maybe like we do in Indiana or in other places around the country. Um is there something that those delegates did in running that is something that other states and other uh, politicos can learn from? You know, I think a lot of it really was the, these local issues. Uh, and we saw a swing of seven seats. The Democrats had a five-seat majority in the House of Delegates. Now Republicans have a two-seat majority. We do have a state Senate. Uh, our state Senate was not up for election this year. It'll go up in two years. Democrats have a two-seat majority in the state Senate, so we now have a divided legislature. But there are probably four or five rural Democrats in the state Senate that I think we need to be keeping an eye on because, uh, you know, are they going to be the sort of Joe Manchins uh, of Virginia? Are they going to be that moderating influence on Democrats? Are they going to be willing to reach across the aisle and work with Republicans in the House to get stuff done, like repealing the state's tax on groceries, uh, you know, uh, bolstering the educational opportunities for students? Um, I, I think that's what we're, we're going to see right off the bat. I think you're going to see Youngkin try to get stuff done. Uh, and I don't think that he's going to engage in, you know, pointless uh, culture war battles, but I don't think he's going to shy away from those issues that that led voters to turn out for him in such record numbers. Uh, it's really at this point, it's, it's a matter of what do these rural Democrat state senators do? Do they want to uh, try to work with Republicans and maybe hang on to their seats two years from now? Or are they going to side with their party, in which case I think they're going to be swept out in a red wave? The, uh, the 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 racial strife is is not done in terms of the attacks on uh, the lieutenant governor elect uh, elect Winsome Sears, uh, but she has sh- shown that she uh, ca- can handle it. Uh, do you think this is going to fade away, or do you think this is now the standard operating procedure? You know, I, I think it's the standard operating procedure. Unfortunately, um, politics is rarely uh, uh, something that appeals to the, uh, the the better angels of our nature. So I. I doubt that Democrats are going to uh, uh, stop these sort of, you know, racist attacks and accusing conservatives of racist dog whistles every chance they can. I I think they believe it helps them with their base, even if it doesn't help them with the electorate overall. Uh, I I happen to think that it is turning people off 
uh, one of the few places in Virginia, Tony, that actually saw a, a decrease in turnout on Tuesday was in Charlottesville, Virginia. And that, yeah. of course, is where the Lincoln Project stunt took place, right, where they had their little tiki torch Democrats that pretend to be white supremacists in support of Glenn Youngkin. That, I think that turned off uh, voters in Charlottesville. Even I think you're right, and, I, uh, and I'm only hoping that everybody learns from it. I just have no faith that they will. Cam Edwards, I'm sorry, I'm up against it. Uh, BearingArms.com. Check out his work over there. Cam, always a pleasure. I'm Tony Katz.